You have guys in the ministry who are unqualified and uh, guys in the ministry who are unaccountable, and they're given so much power and so much notoriety that it feeds the flesh. Pastors rarely surround themselves with people who would be honest with them. They surround themselves with people who will help them get to the goals. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with John MacArthur. John has served as the pastor-teacher of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, since 1969. He's also the president of the Masters University and Seminary, and is known around the world for preaching through the Bible verse by verse on his daily radio program, Grace to You. He's written or edited nearly 400 books and study guides, including Remaining Faithful in Ministry, Nine Essential Convictions for Every Pastor of Crossway. Today, John and I discuss what it takes to persevere as a pastor. He reflects on why it seems like pastoral failure and burnout are more common than ever, why pastors should avoid yes-men at all costs, how a car accident helped confirm his call to ministry, and what he's learned from over five decades at a single church. Let's get started. Well, Pastor MacArthur, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a wonderful partnership we've had through the years with uh, Crossway folks, and we certainly believe in your mission. So you first came to Grace Community Church in 1969, and that's 50 years ago, and you still serve there today. Do you remember the first sermon that you preached from that pulpit and what text it was on? Yeah, it's it's a very vivid memory of mine. I've been reminded of it many, many times through the years. Uh, I preached on Matthew chapter 7, basically uh, verses 13 uh, down to the end of the chapter, and it's uh, focused directly on the text that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, um, haven't we done this and that in your name? And then I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And I actually titled the message, Playing Church, um, it was a little bit of uh, over-the-top uh, youth that drove me that hard at that issue. Hmm. But I grew up in the church. I grew up with a grandfather who was a pastor, a father who was a pastor, and just about all their friends were in pastoral ministry. And it was pretty clear to me that churches were full of unconverted people, um, not unlike uh, America pr- prior to 1740 when the Great Awakening took place. Uh, churches were just packed with non-believing people, and this was a burden in my heart. So the first Sunday morning I was there, I just launched into particularly focusing on uh, chapter 7, verse 21. And um, yeah, that's uh, that sort of set a tone uh, for books that later came out, the gospel according to Jesus, the gospel according to the apostles, the gospel according to Paul, shame to the gospel, all the efforts to to be crystal clear on the gospel so that we could actually do what Scripture says we should do, and that is that let judgment begin at the house of God. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. very vivid memories. In fact, occasionally the church will pass out um, CDs of that ancient sermon, which I would rather they not do, (laughs) but (laughs) they do it anyway as a memorabilia item. So, Yeah. yeah. Do you remember at the time a response or a sense of how people were feeling about that sermon? Well, uh, yeah, uh, th- there was a kind of a stunned uh, silence because it's it's just a very bold, uh, forthright uh, call to genuine salvation. We had people uh, 
who obviously were not converted. Some of them were in the choir. Some of them were on the board. Some of them were involved in ministry. Some of them were just attending. It was sort of like throwing the gauntlet down on the first day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, the response uh, among the, the people was really very positive because the true believers— um, were encouraged by it, and uh, and the people who didn't know the Lord, some of them did some serious self-examination, and over time, people came to know the Lord in a genuine way. I don't remember any direct hostility as a response to it, because I, I don't think people knew what to do with that kind of message. They hadn't had that kind in prior pastors. Right. And it was directly out of the mouth of Jesus, so you, you really kind of don't know what to do with that. It, you don't want to attack the Lord, and it was it was his words that I was basically relating to them. So I think it set a tone for the rest of ministry there. Uh, the people were eager and ready and willing to submit to the Word of God, and whatever the Word of God said, they would they would submit to that. There was, I mean, there was some time for them to adjust to that, but that has become the character of our church even to this day. Hmm. Can you describe the moment that you first felt called to vocational pastoral ministry? Was there a single moment, or was that a, a maybe a period of time of God drawing you to that? Well, uh, I, I don't know that there was um, any kind of epiphany or any kind of single moment in which I felt called to ministry. I, I, nobody put pressure on me. My dad didn't put pressure on me, though he was a, a preacher, you know, his whole life. And um, But I, I just sensed kind of growing up that this is what I wanted to do. This is where my heart was. I, I never really considered anything else seriously. I, I went off uh, to college, uh, even as a freshman, uh, taking basically uh, 10 units of Greek my first year in, wow. in school because I, I wanted to tackle the New Testament, and I I knew that from the get-go. But uh, th- there was an event that happened at, at the end of my freshman year. We were coming back uh, back home to California, and, and the car flipped, and I got thrown out of the car. And it's, it's a story I've told in the past, but I slid down the highway, I don't know, 110 or 20 yards is what they said, mm. and ended up in bed for months. And I think that sealed... Uh, the reality of my calling in the sense that my life was not my own. I, I should not have survived. Um, I had uh, friction burns all over my back. I didn't even have a broken bone in my body, mm. uh, e- even at that. And and I knew the Lord brought me through that. Um, so I, I, I just basically said, look, uh, <laughs> Whatever you want me to do, I give. If, if you're gonna if you're gonna deal with me like this, I'm I'm gonna submit. So, mm. I had three months in bed to just deal with the issue of my own heart and submission to the Lord and being whatever He wanted me to be. And uh, so, I think that sealed what seemed to me to be just kind of a natural direction that my life would take. So, has there ever been a time in your life when you've felt deeply discouraged in your ministry and maybe even question your calling or thought about quitting? Has that ever happened? And uh, if it has, how did you work through that? Well, I can't honestly say there's ever been a time when I was so deeply discouraged that I thought about quitting ministry. I tend to, I, I tend to be a fighter. I'm not a quitter. Um, I remember one of my football coaches saying to me, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And uh, that, that sort of defined my, 
my approach to life and ministry and everything, uh, it, it takes a lot to get me to a point where I give up on something. Obviously, there's a weariness with one's own sin, and, and that you're, you're always dealing with in the ministry. You're always preaching something better than you can live 24-7. But I, I don't—there have been a lot of things that have happened that happened to all ministers. There have been mutinies by staff. There have been um, assaults and attacks by, by people who tell lies about you mm-hmm. and all of that. I mean, that's always been around, and, you know, the, the Internet is now ubiquitous with the anti-MacArthur propaganda as it is against anybody. But none of that really ever mattered to me. Uh, I was always, you know, prone to examine my own heart. Uh, am I who I should be before the Lord? Uh, am I called? Is this what he's given me to do? Then I need to be faithful. Um, it's required that stewards be, be found faithful, Paul said. And I, I always look at ministry as a stewardship. It, it isn't a stewardship of my gift so much. It isn't a stewardship of my talents. It's a stewardship of the people God gives me. Mm. So I'm their shepherd, and uh, I can't quit. I can't fail because they need to be shepherded. Uh, Jesus looked at you know the people in his own generation and said they're like sheep without a shepherd. And if you're called to be the under-shepherd, the great shepherd, and he gives you a flock of people, th- that stewardship better be compelling. In fact, so compelling that nothing can deter you from the exercise of that stewardship. So the responsibility to feed and lead, to provide, and particularly to protect the flock that God has given me um, has always been what anchored me in whatever uh, aspect of ministry I've been involved in. It's always about about the people that the Lord has given me to care for, to nurture, uh, to feed, to lead, to um, and to protect. And so I, I don't I don't give up not because um, I overcome some personal angst, but because. I feel the weight of that responsibility for which I need to give the Lord an account. Would you say that's part of the explanation for why you've remained at Grace Community Church for five decades and not uh, maybe pursued a pastorate somewhere else? I mean, that that kind of a tenure in our day and age seems to me at least to be a pretty rare thing. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I think that's wise on your part. That is the that the, the reason I'm there is because the Lord wanted me there. From the divine side, from my perspective, if I have been, you know, given the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, if that's my calling, to teach the word, to perfect the saints, to do the work of the ministry, that that is a very long process, mm. maturing the saints. And Paul says to the Galatians that he's in labor pains until Christ is fully formed in you. Um, I think if our goal is to build the saints to do effective ministry and to mature them in the process of sanctification until they're Christ-like, uh, how do you walk away from that? And I'm not saying that that everybody needs to stay wherever they are the first time for good. I know the Lord has different plans for different people, but for me, it was that stewardship of these lives and the goal uh, not just of salvation or of getting a, a lot of people in a church and having a lot of activities, but to see the saints perfected for the work of the ministry, to see them uh, becoming like Christ. And also the, the other component in all of it was I, I was completely committed to the 
really the dire need to train godly men. Mm. So from the very beginning, somebody had to produce them. I, somebody had to raise up men who could preach and teach the Word and who could spread the gospel and train leaders around the world. And, and that, I knew, would be a long-term commitment. So um, all of those things from the very beginning were part of how I understood my stewardship. So what do you think about the infrequency with which people serve in one church for for an extended amount of time? I mean, acknowledging what you said earlier about God having different callings for different people and not everyone is called to stay in their first church uh, forever, it does seem like it's a pretty uncommon thing to even be there maybe more than 10 years. Uh, what do you think about that? Is there something going on in the culture surrounding pastoral ministry that needs to be recalibrated? Yeah, there's a lot that needs to be recalibrated. Some of it is on the part of the congregation to learn how to appreciate those who are over them in the Lord. And the other is for the people who are in pastoral ministry not to make the ministry about them so that when they don't like the way they're being treated, they abandon that that ministry. But look, sanctification is a long-time process. Um, trying to tell this generation uh, about sanctification is a, is a great challenge because this generation is so busy trying to make the church feel comfortable for non-believers that, that, that is a, it is a bait and switch to all of a sudden start calling them to holiness. Mm. If you try to design the church to, to, to look like the world and, and to, to be something like what they're used to and the forms of entertainment that they like and the styles that they like, if you, if you adopt the, the worldly sort of cultural identities— and then you, you do that in order to get them in. Then when you call them to separate completely from the world and to live lives of holiness, this is a bait and switch. Uh, so uh, the, the church is going—pragmatism has driven the church down a, a desperately dangerous road where everything that could be offensive is eliminated uh, under the guise of reaching people, when the truth of the matter is God has chosen his elect before the foundation of the world and faithfully preaching the gospel is what the Lord will use to redeem his own, and then sanctification follows. So um, the, church, the church has moved a long, long way from that, and with the d- demise of all the denominations virtually, all, all of the denominations, the traditional ones, even some of the, some of the newer smaller, more evangelical groups are, are disintegrating, and nobody wants any kind of denominational name on their building. It, it's like every church is kind of a one-off thing, and they find their identity in their uniqueness, and basically that uniqueness caters to the world. Mm. Uh, so it alters the message, it alters the worship, it alters everything, and how do you get from accommodating all of that to being serious about God and serious about sin and serious about worship. So, uh, you know, we've said a lot about this through the years, and Crossway's uh, been a great friend in, in publishing books that have addressed this, and uh, it's, it's still with us because pragmatism is hard to kill. Mm. Yeah, how, how would you respond to somebody who hears all that uh, but would maybe respond and say, well, God uses means, though. He uses practical means to reach people and— you know, part of the the job of a church or a Christian or a pastor is to uh, 
um, meet people where they're at and address the questions and concerns that they have as a, as a starting point. Uh, how would you respond to someone like that? Well, I would say God uses means, but the means he uses um, are biblical means, which means he uses prayer and he uses the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. Um, faith comes by hearing the word concerning Christ. Uh, you've been begotten again by the word of truth. Uh, preach the word in season, out of season. The means that he uses are not musical means. The means that he uses are not uh, stylized means, fashion, um, the style of the building, whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, the Lord uses spiritual means, and, and that essentially is the prayer and the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of godly lives. The most, the most powerful of all um, evidences for the gospel are the transformed lives of the people in the church. So if you have a church of people who are genuinely sanctified, who have true conversion and who are living Christ-honoring godly lives, this undergirds the gospel. It's like a German philosopher said many years ago, show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your redeemer. Mm. I mean, if you're going to say that he's going to change your life, then there, whole, there ought to be a whole lot of people with transformed lives that are visible and manifest right, right in front of you. But if the church is full of superficial people who are there for all kinds of so social reason, reasons and entertainment reasons and relational reasons and all of that, but you don't see the power of transformed lives, then wh why would you believe the message? Well, they've reduced the message to God loves you the way you are, and he wants to make you everything you need to be. That is, that is not why the gospel is given. The gospel is given because you're on your way to hell, and God wants to rescue you from sin and death and hell, and he wants to make you the person who can give him glory. It's not about him giving you something. It's about you being capable of worshiping him, giving him the glory that is due his name. And in grace, as a result of that, he grants you eternal life. So the man-centeredness of all of this flies in the face of clearly understanding the whole of redemptive purpose. So as you kind of alluded to earlier in our conversation, uh, you've been the subject of your fair share of criticism over the years. And I wonder if you could speak to uh, what some of the things that you've been criticized for and how you have discerned when to heed that criticism, when to think about it, when to maybe even change because of it, and when just to disregard it. Well, I think, first of all, when uh, a criticism comes, you know, the initial response should be to, to look at yourself and say, is that really true? Is that an honest um, criticism? Is that something that I need to deal with and bring before the Lord? Um, I mean, that's, that's just integrity. And, and of course, you would do that. But those kinds of criticisms usually come um, in the circle where you are the most intimate with the believing community. Um, those are the things that your children might say to you, that your wife might say to you, that your closest friends might say to you, that your fellow elders that you've been with for decades would say to you. Uh, and then those things are helpful and important, and you respond to those. The, uh, the, the sort of public shots 
by people who don't really know you at all um, and um, d- decide to criticize you. You, you just can't chase that. First of all, uh, as a general rule, I refuse to defend myself. Hmm. Um, I, somebody asked me that just yesterday. When somebody sends you a letter of uh, serious, severe criticism and it may not actually be accurate or true, how do you respond? And I have a standard answer. I, I write them back, uh, hopefully a gracious letter, and say thank you for your concern. Um, I, I want to honor the Lord. I don't want to ever do anything that dishonors Him. Please pray for me mm. that um, that the Lord will continue to use me. Thank you for your concern, and that's it. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'll never defend myself. It's pointless, but I will. I will defend others. If you attack the people around me, um, then uh, as a protector, I will step up and I will protect them and, and I will defend them um, uh, because they're defensible, because I know them. But as far as I'm concerned, that you can't do that. It's, it's not uh, helpful. Uh, it, it comes across as pride mm. and sort of self-seeking. But I think if you are faithful, um, others who know you will will defend you. But you're never going to be able to get away from that. It's especially today. It's one thing to have people not like you. It's something else for them to have the internet. Mm. <laughs> so uh, you have to you have to take it for what it is and just continue to keep your head down and be faithful. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck that we just we live in an era when the ability to direct criticism directly at somebody and then the ability to see all the criticism directed at you is just so heightened. Mm-hmm. Do you do you go on Twitter and Facebook and blogs or do you like stay off of all of that? I don't even know how to get on <laughs> Twitter and Facebook. No. Um, uh, you know, I'm glad for the, the Internet because the truth can go everywhere. Uh, but obviously there's an equal downside to the upside. No, I, I don't have anything to do with that. I don't engage in arguing with anybody on the Internet. Look, um, if, if anybody wants to know what I really believe, uh, it's out there somewhere in the air. I've, I've said enough through the years. Um, if there's something that I've said that's wrong and somebody wants to help me with that or uh, clarify something, that's, they usually will personally connect with me. Mm. But people who are just on the attack, there's no sense in me fighting that because it's not going to do any good. It's just pouring gas on the fire. That's what they want. So my response to all of that is just to completely personally ignore it. So almost every week, uh, it seems like we hear another story of pastoral burnout or moral failure. Uh, Do you think this phenomenon is on the rise or are we just hearing about it more often, maybe because of the internet? Uh, and if it is on the rise, why do you think that is? Well, it is on the rise, uh, and it's on the rise for a couple of reasons. This is a sex-saturated, self-saturated, um, lust of the eyes, lust of the uh, flesh, pride of life, culture to the max. And so uh, Satan has basically orchestrated the world around us to just fire these um, this this entire culture just comes firing consistently at the, the evil impulses in in the human heart, the re, the remaining flesh. That that's part of it. It's just ubiquitous and relentless and available in your hand at any split second. So that's part of the reason. Another 
element of the reason is because ministry is open to anybody who wants it. You know, if you if you got up and preached a sermon in Calvin's day, they'd throw you in prison. Or maybe if your name was Servetus, they'd kill you. They had such a sacred view of the pulpit that you you just couldn't do that. You you couldn't just decide you're going to be a pastor and this is going to be a church and I'm going to do my shtick and you know I'm going to get my torn jeans and my black t-shirt and I'm going to get rock and roll music and we're going to launch this thing. And based upon your sort of natural skills and glib uh, speaking ability, you, you pull something off. But nobody, you're accountable to no one. No one basically ordained you. No one laid hands on you, honestly. No one saw your suitability for ministry, and no one speaks into your life. Um, in fact, people nowadays who are pastors uh, rarely surround themselves with people who would be honest with them. Mm. Um, they surround themselves with people who will help them get to the goal. So, so you have guys in the ministry who are unqualified and uh, guys in the ministry who are unaccountable, and they're given so much power and so much notoriety that it, it feeds the flesh. It was a lot simpler when there was a, a very, very uh, carefully crafted ordination process for men when they went through Seminary, people say, do you need to go to seminary? You need to go to seminary if for no other reason you need to be in a seminary, in a location uh, for three or four or five years so that the people in that location can validate your character, if nothing else, while they're teaching you the Word of God, and then to be ordained by some uh, wise and mature godly men who lay their hands on you and say, this is a man suited for ministry. And then you have a sustained accountability to those men. But that's not how church happens today. Almost every church is a kind of a one-off, independent, um, solo entrepreneurship. Uh, at least that's the trend. Um, um, and even in churches that are still connected uh, to, to some kind of a denomination, they, they basically are celebrating their, their uniqueness and independence. So I think this is difficult because it's not a brotherhood. It's not a, a holy fellowship you know, like uh, Wesley used to talk about, it, it is not a brotherhood of godly men. It, it is a business. Um, it is entertainment. It is based upon some kind of natural skills. Um, and um, I, I just think the potential in unaccountable and un spiritually unqualified people, manifestly unqualified, I say that because of the narcissism and the, even the love of money that's evident in it all mm. uh, is a formula for, you know, moral failure. So you would say that a plethora of yes men is uh, one of the things at the heart of this problem. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, and I also, I, I would go back to the, the need again for an intense residential seminary education under godly men who are committed not just to teaching something, but to shaping the men in their care. You know, I, 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 you go back to the early days of seminary in America when, when the faculty of the, the seminaries, uh, you, you go back, uh, whether it's Westminster, go back to Princeton even in the early years, and the guys that were the faculty were the spiritual caretakers of the students, and they were the ones that preached to them every week and preached to them on Sunday. They were teaching them, and then they were preaching to them they were shepherding them. They were. They lived in the same environment with them, 
this was what seminary was intended to be. It wasn't intended to be uh, sort of an online distance kind of learning experience. Mm. It was intended to be high, intense relationships with godly men that built accountability. And then you would go into a church that was overseen by godly men who would approve you and affirm you and and come alongside of you. And, And now it's so interesting. The assumption is that the pastor rules the church and the elders do what he wants or whoever the church leaders are are under him. I see this all the time in the secular world. People assume when they they speak of my role in a church that I'm like the president of a corporation and all the elders answer to me when exactly the reverse is true. But that's not how it comes off. Mm. Uh, so where you have personality-driven kinds of things and you elevate a person, the potential of, of corruption, given the other elements, you know, uh, is, is going to be higher than it would be in a place where somebody is humbly serving other godly people, has high levels of accountability, and has been vetted and tested with uh, intense personal contact. Well, Pastor MacArthur, thank you so much for talking with me today and for your 50 years of faithful ministry to Christ and the example that that is for pastors, seminarians, young men who are thinking about that uh, everywhere. We we are grateful for you. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm so thankful for the partnership we've had with Crossway. That was John MacArthur on how to persevere as a pastor. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Remaining Faithful in Ministry, Nine Essential Convictions for Every Pastor, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.